So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go and open it to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I don't have the Pew Bible number. If someone who is using a Pew Bible could yell out the number, that would be helpful. John chapter 17. Seven sixty five for those of us who are using Pew Bibles. It will be in, on page seven sixty five. John seventeen, we'll be looking at the whole chapter, and it says this. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you, because the words that you gave me I have given them. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours." Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them, because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they be completely one, so that the world may know you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me, 
because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will make it known. So the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Righteous Father, we come before you asking humbly that you would reveal truths from your word. Help us to be able to behold your glory from this text, to see you as infinitely holy and righteous. Convict us of sin as we hear from your word. And let us be more grateful for the gift and work of Jesus. Help me as I speak to be able to speak words of truth this morning. And help us to feed ourselves from your word. To enjoy it evermore. To savor it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are few things less frustrating in life than calling someone and then not picking up. And you call them again and again, and they seem to not know that you exist. Or what's worse is texting someone, giving them the whole day to reply, and they still don't do it. Or what's even worse than that is if you're using Facebook to message someone, or you're using iMessage, and you can see that they read your text, and they still don't respond. Why is this so frustrating? Isn't it because... We see the connection that we're trying to make, and we feel like we're getting rejected. Like they know that you're there, but they're not acknowledging your existence. Our life is built around connections. Why are weddings so sweet? It's not because of the cake. I don't like cake. But it's the sweetness of the connection between a man and a woman engaging in godly covenant commitment to one another. That's what makes weddings so sweet. What makes funerals cause pain isn't only the pain of losing someone in your life, but also in reflecting on the joy and sweetness of the connection that you had with the person. And as you think about those memories of the years had with the other person, you begin to feel the loss of the connection that you had. Now, we live in a world full of connections attempted, connections made, and connections lost. And here in this chapter, we can actually see how the church is expected to interact and connect with one another. And what the church should actually be, based on this chapter, is more connected than any other group in the entire world. So in Jesus' prayer in John 17, we will see the answer to the question as to how the world or how the church is expected to connect with one another. So this is the main idea of the passage, to be one with one another as Christ is with the Father. To be one with one another as Christ is with the Father. Now, there's going to be three steps that we need to take in order to be one with Christ and with one another, as Christ is with the Father. So firstly, we're going to look and learn that we need to recognize the glory of Christ. That we need to recognize the glory of Christ. Secondly, we need to sanctify ourselves with the Word. 
meaning sanctify ourselves with the word. And lastly, we, in light of this reality, need to actually pursue unity and be one with one another. To be one with one another. So firstly, let's look at recognizing the glory of Christ. Look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Now, what is Jesus talking about in regards to the hour that's coming? See, if we read this chapter in the context of the book, we could actually see that Jesus' final teachings were in the four chapters before this prayer, and immediately after this prayer, him and his disciples go into the Garden of Gethsemane. So, this prayer is sandwiched between Jesus' final teachings and his betrayal. So now we can see that Jesus is going to the Father, asking for the glory that he had, so that he may glorify the Father in his death. Now look at verse 2. It says, For you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. You see, central to this prayer is the identity of Christ. Before we can even talk about unity, if we want to understand how unity is made, we have to understand who the God that we're worshiping is. Christ is authoritative. He has authority over all flesh. It was given to him by the Father. And why does he have this authority? Look at the end of verse 2. Why does he have this authority? To give eternal life. See, Christ is authoritative so that he can give eternal life to his people. Now look at verse 3. We can see that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. You see, we need to recognize the glory of Christ here. What is eternal life here? Eternal life is actually the knowledge, is knowing that the true God is Yahweh, and the one that Yahweh has sent is His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Amen. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, I wonder who you think Christ is. I wonder if you recognize the authority of Christ. You see, some of us may think that the right way to live life is to not touch on anyone's toes. That all religions are right. That, that Christians have their own faith. Buddhists have their faith. Hindus have their faith. Muslims have their faith. Everyone has their own faith. And the way to live this life is to coexist. Just let everyone believe what they want to believe. Don't touch on anyone's toes. And if anyone says that their faith is actually right, then they're the ones who are wrong. Because they're bigots. But what can we see here in this verse? Look at verse 3. That eternal life is knowing God. The only true God. And the one that He has sent, Jesus Christ. There's no other way to come to the Father. There's no other way to have eternal life. If eternal life is the knowledge... That God is the only true God. That the Christian God is the only true God. And to know that Jesus Christ is the one that He has sent, then that means that there is no other way to come to the Father. There is no other means to go into heaven. There is no other means for eternal life except through the Son. 
Now, let's take a step back and approach this philosophically. Some people might look at me and say, John, you're exactly the person that I'm talking about. You are that bigot. You see, the way to live life is to be inclusive. The exclusivity of Christianity is the very reason why I can't accept it. But let's take a step back here and look at this logically. If you are saying that, that God is this universal being, and that the only way to live life is to be inclusive of all religions, then that assumes one of two things about this God. Either A, he doesn't exist, so it doesn't matter which God you believe in. Or number two, God is so separated from the universe that he doesn't care what you think about him. Right? If God really is this inclusive God, then that means that, number one, he hasn't revealed himself to us, so we can't know him. And secondly, even if we got it wrong, he wouldn't really care. And what we can actually see from that is that in your inclusive statement, you're saying an exclusive statement about God. See, in the Bible, we see a God who is righteous, who is wrathful, who desires to make his name known, but also doesn't enjoy lies. You see, when you say that God is an inclusive God, you are lying. See, if the Christian God is true, and what the Bible says about God is true, then that means that there are a lot of people in this world that are wrong. And the question that you need to ask yourself, non-Christian, is whether or not this God is true. Because if he is, then that means that it has profound implications in your life that you can't ignore. That you can't just put a coexist bumper sticker on the back of your car and expect to be okay. You can't do that. Now look at verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now what is this work? See, throughout the whole book of John, John explains the life of Jesus. He explains the purpose of why he came, who he is as a person. And throughout this book, you see his life, death, and resurrection. And this is the work that John and Jesus is talking about here. See, Jesus is God. This is what he came to do. If you want to learn how to be unified, you have to start here. Because what is the connection that we have with one another? Is it not the same passion and love that we have for this God, Amen. for this Jesus? So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, if you don't listen to anything else this morning, this is what I have to say to you. God created the world to be beautiful and to glorify his own name. Amen. We ruined it when we sinned. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the world became fractured. Any pain that you might experience in the world, any broken connections that you might feel, the sting of death, the hurtness between conflicts with other people, the pain that you might feel, the lack of fulfillment that you feel in life is all due to sin. But God wasn't an unjust, unloving God. He knew us in our state, and He sent Jesus And we can see here, if you read the whole book, you'll see Jesus' passion and love for his people. He didn't just leave us out to dry. He lives a perfect life that we can't do. And we, as evil humanity, killed him. 
And in His death, He paid for your sins and my sins. That if you repent and put your faith in Jesus, that He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel. You have to understand this first. There's no other way to have genuine connection with God. Jesus is the only way. You have to start here. So I invite you, non-Christian, recognize the glory of Christ. See His beauty, His majesty. There's no other master who dies for His people. Put your faith and trust in Him. Repent of your sin. And find the joy that we as Christians have. If you don't know what it's like, ask other Christians around you. You're in a room full of Christians. Ask how Christ has affected their lives. Find the joy that they have that you don't. So we can see in verse 5 that Jesus continues on asking God to glorify him in his presence with the glory that he had before the world existed. Jesus is God. Now look at verse 6. Now we're going to kind of rush through these next couple verses. So verse 6, I revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus is talking about his disciples here. Now look at verse 7. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you, because the words that you gave me I have given them. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So we can see here that there are three logical steps that we can take when we behold the glory of Christ. And we can see it from the disciples' response. They know that the words that Jesus says to them are from God the Father. They recognize the glory of Christ. They understand it. They know that God is the only true God and that Jesus is the one that he has sent. So they receive the words and then they know that these words are true and then they believe that God has sent them. So if you want to repent and put your faith in Christ, this is what you need to do. You need to hear the words that are being spoken this morning. You need to receive them. You need to think about them, contemplate them. The Christian response isn't just an emotional one without thoughts. It's one that's used with your brain and also emotional. So contemplate them, come to know that they're true, and then believe that Jesus is the one that sent them. So we can see that in verse 8. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine. And I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so scripture may be fulfilled. So we can see here that the disciples were protected by Jesus. See, when you reflect on the glory of Christ, he protects you. Right? Now, we don't have a physical Jesus with us here today. If you believe that, you can talk to me after the service. But how do we know that Jesus is still for us today? Because Jesus died for us. Amen? Amen. Because we can see in his life, death, and resurrection that Jesus is good and that he cares for us. So, again, step one is to recognize the glory of Christ. We need to look up and understand who Jesus is. Because if he is the true God, 
If God the Father did send the Son, then we need to start there. Because there's nothing else that matters more in this world than having a connection with the Son and having a connection with God. So again, we need to recognize the glory of Christ. Second thing that we need to do, now that we have the foundation of our faith, we need to sanctify ourselves with the Word. We need to sanctify ourselves with the Word. Look at verse 13. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. See, you want to give Christ joy? Don't we want to make Christ happy? Don't we want to make God happy in our lives? The way we do it, according to verse 13, is by listening to what He has to say. So many people think that love is different from what the Bible says. But we can see here that the very definition of love is bringing glory to Christ and bringing Him joy. And the way that you have Christ's joy completed in you is by doing what He says. So, do you want to bring Christ's joy? Read His words. Heed them. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. You see, here we can see very clearly what the Christian life looks like. Firstly, Jesus gives us the word. You see, oftentimes we can look at the Bible as a leash that prevents us from going out and doing the right things. But what we can actually see here is that the word is a gift. And the gift actually requires that the world hates us. See, you could live a life skirting around and trying to impress the world, not step on anyone's toes, but we can see right here that the Word is a sword. The world will hate us. That we're not identified with the world. That we're not of the world. Now, does the world hate you? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Does the world hate you? Now, I'm not saying that you go out and slap someone of the world, right? Go onto the street and say, hey, are you a non-Christian, sir? Yes. No. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, are you distinguishable? Do people know that you're a Christian? And based on that, what is their response? Because this is the truth. The aroma of Christ will be sweet and savory to some. But to others, it will be repulsively disgusting. And that's the truth. It's not that we're going out and intentionally trying to be divisive. It's that we're living faithfully to the Word. We have to live faithfully to the Word. So does the world hate you? Does the world look at you and dislike you? Because guess what? The world hated Jesus. And they crucified Him. And if He's our Master, what do you think He they will do to you? Look at verse 15. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, if you're like me, the logical response from then is that if the world is going to hate me, I'm going to stay as far away from the world as I can. Right? Keep an arm's distance. Don't touch me. I don't want to get hurt. But we can see here that Jesus isn't asking for that. We're not meant to separate from society. We're supposed to engage them. We're not to to be taken out of the world, but that we're supposed to be protected from the evil one. Christians do not retreat. We do not.
But what does it mean to be protected by Christ then? Right? We look at the world. If you go on Voice of the Martyrs or Persecution.com, daily you will see Christians dying for their faith. So what does it mean that Christ is protecting us? Right? If Christ is protecting us, then why are so many Christians suffering in the world? Well, the truth is that the protection isn't from our lives and protecting our lives, but the protection in verse three is from I mean, fifteen is from the evil one. See, the protection that Christ gives isn't a physical protection; it's a protection of faithfulness. If you believe in Christ, if you hold to his words, if you recognize your identity in Christ and you hold fast to his words, he will keep you. Right? Jesus is God. And if he's praying to God the Father, do you think that God won't answer his prayer? We will be protected from the evil one. And even in our deaths and the lives that we lead, we need to lead lives of faithfulness to God. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Verse 17. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. See, here we can see something very profound. And we need to ask ourselves a question. Are you sanctified by God's word? And before that, do you even read God's word? How can you sanctify yourself if you don't know what you're being sanctified by? Are you set apart? Do you wash yourselves in the Word? The Word is the fountain of truth. Now look at verse 17 and you'll notice that Jesus says that God's Word is truth. Now there's a distinction that we have to make here. God's Word isn't true. It's not that God's Word has a characteristic of being true that contributes to this greater circle of truth. But that God's word is truth, is the very definition of truth. Do you want to find absolute truth? Read God's word. That is truth. There's no other means that we can find absolute truth. Now, all truth is God's truth. But in a world today of post-modernity, they'll tell you that there's no way that you can find truth. But we can see here that the Bible tells us something different. There is absolute truth. That also means that there's some people that are absolutely wrong. And we need to recognize that. Do not be deceived. Sanctify yourselves. Wash yourselves in the world. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. We can see here that we're actually being sent into the world. So this is a missional verse in verse 18. We're not meant to just sit around and be holy and just navel gaze at ourselves and admire our own holiness. No, we're supposed to engage the world. This is why we're not separate from the world. We need to be in the world, engaging them with the truth. We are equipped for a mission. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, John, I didn't go to college for Bible. Some people ask me questions, and I don't know the answer. I'm awkward when I talk to people. I feel uncomfortable. Well, guess what, Christian? Do you know what you have that non-Christians don't? You have God's Word. And this is all that's sufficient for you. 
Equip yourself with the word for the mission. Because that's all that's necessary. If you know God's word, if you love God's word, then you are equipped to be missional. You need to be missional. And in verse 19, you can see that Christ does the very thing. He sanctifies himself for them. So that they may also be sanctified by the truth. We can follow Christ's example here. And more than that, through Christ's death, we have the opportunity to be able to do that. We're not enslaved by our sin anymore. Jose preached on this several weeks ago that in Philippians 1, Paul writes that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Amen? So don't be discouraged. We can sanctify ourselves with the word that we can look forward and run the race of perseverance. Now lastly, so we can see there that we need to sanctify ourselves with the word. That was point two. And lastly, we need to be one with one another. We need to be one with one another. And this is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. Look at verse 20. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Do you realize that Jesus prayed for you? Like, not just praying for his disciples, but he literally prayed for you. He prayed for every single Christian who's sitting in these seats this morning. He knew that the Christian message would spread, and he's praying for those who will believe in their message. He's praying for us. He's praying for every single one of us in our seats this morning. And this is the only prayer that he makes for future Christians that will believe in the message. Which means that whatever he's praying for must be of paramount importance. That this must be incredibly important for us. That when Jesus thinks of us sitting in these seats this morning, this is what he's praying for us. So let's look at what he prays about. Look at verse 21. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, this is Jesus' only prayer for future believers. And what does he pray for? He prays for unity. He prays for unity. And he doesn't just pray for a partial unity here. He's praying for a complete unity. So, why should we have unity? Because this is the means by which that the world will know that God has sent Jesus. What a profound statement. Because look at verse 21 again. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Right? So that the world may believe that God has sent the Son. Now, turn over on your other page and look at verse 3. That he defines eternal life, right? Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus saying in verse 21? He's saying that through our unity, the world would know that God has sent the Son. And in verse 3, he says that by knowing that God has sent the Son, that is the very definition of eternal life. So, do you want to see people get saved? Well, Christian, pursue unity. Such an odd idea for us. In a, in a day that's worked around meeting a bottom line or meeting a quota. 
See, we can try evangelism programs. We can try passing out tracts. We can try holding signs in the street. And those are not necessarily bad methods. Right? Maybe even one-on-one sharing the gospel with other people. And I'm not denying those things. We should do all of those things. We should try to share the gospel with other people. But we can see here that the most effective method of evangelism is through unity. That is the most effective method of evangelism. Now, let's address some objections towards unity here. Because there's some knee-jerk reactions that we might have when we think about unity. See, we can understand the concept of unity, but when we look around, things might get a little bit more difficult. So here's a question for you this morning. Is everyone in view of your eyesight this morning someone that you have complete peace and love towards? Right? As you look around the room this morning, are you completely unified and connected with the love of Jesus with these people? See, suddenly it gets personal. Suddenly things get a little bit more difficult for us. So firstly, let me address this. If I said that we need to be unified and your immediate thought was to think of someone else who's causing disunity, brother or sister in Christ, I love you. Take the log out of your own eye first. Right? Matthew 7 says to take the log out of your own eye. Pursue unity yourself first and then rebuke your brother. So here's three objections that you might have towards unity. Number one, it's impossible to be completely united. It is not feasible. Okay, that's a fair question. You can't be united with every single person in the world, right? You're bound to have disagreements with people. So who is this text talking about? Well, it's talking about future believers, but more specifically, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the local church and how we interact with one another. See, when we're saying that we are displaying the glory of God together, that's through our unity with one another. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Flip with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verse 10. Ephesians 3.10 says this. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. In other words... How do you want to see God's multifaceted wisdom displayed in the world today? Through the church. In other words, how do you see the glory of God displayed in the world today? It's through the church. The way that you show God's glory to the world is through the local church. And you do that through the unity that we have with one another. You see, if you take the New Testament and all the commands that we're supposed to have with one another and you put them together, what you actually have is the church. That when you love one another, when you bear each other's burdens, as you care after one another, you are a local church, including as you rebuke one another. So church, do you want to know what those responsibilities are? Look at the church covenant. It's in our baptism. It's in our hymnals, inside the front cover. If you want 
a quick way to understand how you could pursue unity with your brothers and sisters? The way you do it is by fulfilling this church covenant. So let me just read a couple of these to you. Do you remember one another in prayer? Do you rejoice at each other's happiness? Do you aid one another in sickness and distress? Do you cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and Christian courtesy and speech? Do you restore one another through discipline? See, this is how you pursue unity with one another as a church. Objection number two. I'm afraid to fully commit. I'm afraid to fully commit. That's a necessary fear. All of us have insecurities. But what are you really afraid of? Are you afraid of your sin? Jesus paid it all. You don't have to bear the weight of your sin. Are you afraid of your weakness? Well, there's an answer to that as well. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. For the sake of time, I'll just read it. It says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. In other words, if you're afraid to fully commit because of your lack or your insecurities that you have in yourself, that's perfect. God's power is made known through our weaknesses. And another way that we do this is through the very idea of church membership. Church membership exists because of our understanding of one another's weaknesses. See, if you want a definition of church membership, it's this. It's a mutually understood commitment to one another's discipleship. It's a mutually understood commitment to one another's discipleship. And guess what church membership does for us? It actually removes the fear of man from the equation because it's mutual. Right? Think of it this way. Do you need to wonder if your fellow church member is going to bear your burdens? No, because guess what? We committed to it right here. So you can know fully and with full confidence that your fellow church member is going to bear your burdens. And if they don't do it, then they're violating church covenant, in which case you could become a sin. Secondly, if someone wants to share their burdens with you, you're fully expected to love and care after the other person. You see, church membership exists to help sinful people pursue Christ together. Now, if you've never been part of a church that practices church membership, first of all, I, I wonder what it's been like for you. I know from my own personal experience, there's been days where I felt burdened that I was hesitant to share with other people out of fear for what it felt like. Other people that might be looking for church churches for months or years, walking the Christian life alone. Well, we can see here in this text that that's not the way it's supposed to be lived. It's a lonely life. And Christ didn't design it that way. So I encourage you to join a church family. If you'd like to hear information about our church, feel free to talk to me afterwards. But if you'd like to know more about other churches closer to your area or other local churches that you could commit to, we would love to help you. We're committed to local churches, and we want to help them. Amen? Now, thirdly, now, this is the most brutally honest one. It's hard to love other people. It's hard. Some people just get on your nerves. You just don't want to love them. 
And my response to that would be, well, it's hard to love you too. <laughs> right? It's hard to love you too. Like, let's look at marriage. Did you ever think about how difficult it might be for your spouse to put up with you? Right? Like, it's so easy for us to think about how difficult our own spouse is, right? But have you ever paused and thought about how difficult it is for your other spouse to put up with you? And your own difficulties? And your own weakness? Now, imagine a marriage where you avoided every single possible conflict. Would that be a strong marriage? How deep of a connection would that actually be? See, what actually ends up happening is that the cord between the two of you becomes thin and fragile. You see, difficulties in your marriage don't actually wear the cord out. They strengthen it. You're building bastions of fortitude around areas that were previously vulnerable. That's why every fight that you have with your spouse is a gift from God. And it's the same way with our church family. Whenever we encounter difficulties with one another, it is a gift of a father to either rebuke ourselves of sin or to rebuke another Christian. And isn't that great? Don't we all want to kill sin in our lives? So it's a beautiful thing. Early church father Tertullian, reflecting on the unity of the early church, said this, Look how they love one another. For the pagans hate one another. And how they are ready to die for each other. For the pagans are readier to kill each other. See, this was an exclamation that he had when he just saw the early church interact with each other. Would people say that if they looked at First Southern Baptist Church this morning? Would people look at the way that we interact with one another and say how they love one another? This is absurd. I've never seen people love each other like they do here. Would they say that? Because if they don't, then church, we're in need of deep repentance. Because we're violating the one thing that Jesus prayed for us to have. But if we do have this, and if we do pursue this, then we are displaying the glory of God to the world. And the city of Bellflower and the entire world will look at our church and see how they love one another. See, burdens look awfully small when we look at the gift of Christ. Amen. So we can love one another regardless of how hard it is. So here's three questions for unity that we can see from the following three verses that we need to ask ourselves as a church. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. So here's the question. Do you desire to see people be with Jesus and see his glory? Pretty basic question. Do you desire to see people be with Jesus and see his glory? See, because when you're unified, you are doing that. And when you're disunified, you're actually inhibiting that. Look at verse 25. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Do you desire to have others know that God has sent the Son? Do you desire for others to know that God has sent the Son? Do you want other people to know about Jesus? The answer is yes, 
then the response is to pursue unity. And lastly, look at verse 26. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love you loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Do you desire for other people to receive God's love? If you desire that, then pursue unity. And what a great love we have, right? In verse 26, it says that the love that the Father has for the Son will be in us. Did you ever think about that? Think about how much the Father loves the Son. Right? Like, think about that. The Trinity's love for one another. Think about how deep of a connection that they have. Think about how much love and joy they have in one another. And picture that love that the Father has for the Son in you. What a great love. It should humble us. It should baffle us. It should make us speechless. And as we experience the joy of unity, we get to see more of that love. And how great a love that is. And how great a glory that is. Right? Because if we see the glory of Christ displayed, doesn't it repeat the cycle again? Doesn't it make us recognize the glory of Christ more? Doesn't that make us desire to sanctify us, ourselves, with a word more? And to sanctify our Christian brothers and sisters with a word more? And as we do that, do we not pursue unity with more fervence? And the cycle repeats itself again and again and again. And that's how godliness begins to fester and grow. So, again, glory in the sun. Sanctify yourselves in the word and be one with one another. This is how we're supposed to live our Christian life. And as we do so, we get the privilege of showing God's glory to the world. And that is a great thing. Lord God, we praise you for your glory. There isn't a day that you haven't planned for the purposes of your glory. And we pray today that even as we interact with each other after this sermon, help us to display the glory of God with one another. Help us to recognize how great of a sacrifice Christ was and how glorious you are. Help us to pursue holiness and sanctify ourselves with the word. And help us in our interactions with one another to pursue unity to love one another, to bear each other's burdens. And in so doing, we know that we're making you smile. So we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.